For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist, and I am here, although not physically present, with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Hey guys. Hey, where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. When are you coming home to us? We miss Just a you, few Adam. days. Just a few days, guys. Ma- Max has been bullying me. <laughs> uh, Evan, who did you talk to this week? Uh, this week, I was uh, I was in San Francisco, and I stopped in to see uh, Monica Buerline and Clara Jeffrey, who are the co-editors of Mother Jones magazine. Whoa, that's the first. This is the first uh, two-person interview. Yeah, how'd that go? Yes, it's uh, they they weren't particularly tough to wrangle because they're extremely articulate, and uh, they've obviously worked so closely together that they have this sort of like team thing going. That's uh, it's it's pretty fascinating because you don't see that with uh, with magazines very often. We talk about that a lot. One other quick piece of context for the interview uh, that you should know is that uh, Mother Jones Magazine has the table that used to be in the Rolling Stone offices many years ago, which has knife marks on it, which were purportedly made by Hunter S. Thompson. Although uh, there's a surprise uh, discovery in the podcast about that. <laughs> wow, Evan. <laughs> Evan must have been so happy. Have you been out selling? Because you just sold me. Uh, you know, if you're uh, not selling, but if you're buying a domain name, yes, maybe you should try our sponsor. It's HostGator. HostGator is the best place to get a website, and they offer all kinds of premium hosting at low costs. If you're looking to start an email newsletter, there's only one way to do it, and that's with Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a powerful, simple way to keep in touch with the people who care about what you have to say. And why don't you take it away, Evan and some people from Mother Jones? <laughs> that was your worst segue so far. You need uh, Evan here for like your segue magic. Everything's different without Evan here. All right. Here's Evan and the editor of Mother Jones. I'm going to go eat tacos. That's my plan Where? for the rest of the day. That is, that's a huge Excellent question. Excellent question, yeah. I'm actually really into this place that used to be across my old office on like Mission and 29th or 30th called hmm. like, it's just called like El Pollo Loco or something Oh, that's like pretty that. good, yeah. I like that place. The Pollo Loco chain? Is it a chain? 
The ones with the, so the they're chain a big rooster. has like big yellow. Yeah, that's a they're, they're all over the place. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, that. I think you I should also maybe one. consider Taco Licious if you want Nouveau tacos. Oh, I've been to Taco Licious. That's a fancy taco. It's kind of fancy tacos. Yeah. Uh, so welcome to the Long Form Podcast, and thanks for doing it. Thanks for having us. Um, it's funny because usually, uh, Clara, you said you were in the middle of uh, shipping this week, which I actually want to talk about what that means at a place where you are also shipping online every day. Um, but it's also funny because we do, we mostly interview writers, and so they're not uh, time constrained generally. We just can kind of like sit around and shoot the shit. And so like, we sure, they don't, have, they don't have deadlines. <laughs> yeah. So we'll try to keep this, uh, you know, as tight as possible. But maybe we should start there because, uh, you know, Mother Jones people of a certain era might think of it as a magazine a print magazine and other people might think of it as some sort of like online news institution. So you're in the middle of shipping now. I presume that means you're closing the print. That's right. Issue. We're closing the print issue. To give me a little bit of a sense of how that relates to what's happening online. Do you, are you, is that a separate process or are they sort of integrated in some way? They're fairly integrated, but we're constantly experimenting with that. So we will run pieces that first appear online and might get reconstituted for the magazine and certainly vice versa. Um, some projects will start online and kind of be a series of articles that result in a feature or maybe just a box in the magazine. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, when we drop a big feature that originally started out in the magazine, we can follow up on it online. So that was one of the big advantages to us, it, you know, as investigative journalists, to sort of drop a big investigation and then never be able to go back to it because you're constrained by print demands just seemed kind of ridiculous. And that's one of the reasons we remade Mother Jones starting about six years ago. I should probably pause for a second and say that was Clara. Hi, it's Clara, <laughs> the one with the cold. <laughs> this is Monica. Hello. So that uh, listeners will be able to do some distinguishing throughout. So, I mean, I guess that gets me into like one of the bigger questions, which is you are co-editors in chief of this magazine. And I'm interested in how that came about, but just following along those same lines, I'm interested in how do you divide up what happens here? Is it you're all, you're both involved in everything. One of you takes something, the other of you primarily takes something else, or how does it, how does it split? It really doesn't split very much. Huh. Um, it's more of a Vulcan mind meld um, to, you know, torture an already tortured metaphor. It's, um, we both tend to look at almost everything. One of us will usually be the lead on any given project and sometimes we'll trade that back and forth just depending on bandwidth. Um, but mostly I think what we found is that um, two brains are just better than one um, on, you know, important stuff on the trivial stuff half a brain is just fine um so we do a lot of cross-pollination and um sitting around and you know exchanging ideas and making them better and that said you know when we have the advantage of being able to split into two when there are time constraints and literally someone needs to be in a different physical space you know someone needs to go do this thing in new york and one of us can stay or some of us, somebody needs to go talk to the publisher and somebody else needs to go talk to the creative director. If time constraints allow, you know, make that advantageous, we could do that, which mm -hmm. is kind of a nice advantage. I would think the place where 
it could get more tricky would be on the decision-making side. You know, when a big decision has to be made, do you feel like you're always on the same page or that somehow battling it out is a positive thing? I think we're largely on the same page and when we do battle it out, it usually leads to a better result. Um, if it didn't, I think we would have gotten frustrated with this arrangement and certainly our staff would have. Um, so I think it, 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 in some ways, allows us to move quicker, even though sometimes people are like, wait, one of you guys has run it and the other hasn't. Th- that can be slow in, in an incremental sense, but on the whole, I think it leads to greater velocity because we can just move things through a decision-making process faster. And when we do um, disagree to answer that question, you know, the, the secret, I think, to um, why this works is that we have so much respect for each other that you know, if one of us loses an argument, it's sort of like, okay, the way you want to do it is also fine. Um, it's just not what I would have done. But that is is really the, the cornerstone. I mean, in the world of magazines, it seems like an unusual arrangement, although you may be able to cite many examples of some co-editor situations, at least currently, it seems like, you know, without getting too far into like the dude editor, all that right. kind of like nonsense although we can't get into that too um, <laughs> this idea of like a singular person who's like the voice you know the the face and voice of the magazine which, which sets its style and tone all that which sort of is stuff. anyone who's ever worked at a magazine or really any entity knows is not true there's you know there's always like a deputy or other people that you know often run everything day to day while the person in charge is really about being a public persona um, you know there, there are all kinds of different arrangements um, you know we sort of feel like and there have been great examples. I mean, I, you know, I think the New York Review of Books for years was run by um, two people, mm-hmm. Bob Silvers, and I am forgetting her name, Barbara mm, Epstein. Uh, and, you know, that was obviously a magnificent partnership. Um, and there have been others, but, you know, Google is also another one that comes to mind. Um, I think it can work out just fine. Yeah, so looking outside the magazine world, it's yeah, pretty common I mean, to law partnerships, medical partnerships. I mean, everybody needs a bullshit detector, right? Um, Or, you know, somebody to have a gut check with, and people who don't think they need that um, usually make bad decisions. So we make much better decisions as a result of having that. Yeah, I guess it guarantees that it's not all yes, yes men, yes women employees. Right. You know, there's someone there who will always say, like, no, that's not. Right. That's that's terrible. Fortunately, we also have a staff that is not shy to tell us that we're full of it when we are. So um, there's there's fail safes everywhere. So how did how did it come about? What's the history of how you became both became uh, the the co-editor in chief? Well, we were working here um, uh, prior to that. And we've actually known each other for more than 20 years. I mean, the sort of the first big feature that I ever wrote, Monica, um, edited back in Minneapolis. Um, so, oh, wow. Yeah. Is it for uh, Alt Weekly? For uh, City Pages. Oh. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, we had a long history of working together. Um, and Mother Jones was just going through, you know, sort of perennial problems, kind of settling on an editorial vision. And so we kind of said, let's do this together and, you know, kind of bypass competing with each other. And, you know, we want to save this place and we have an idea of how to do it. So we did you propose, did you come to them and say, we're applying as a unit yeah, for this job? We did. And, and actually, as I, as I recall, um, the publisher went <coughs> home and um, 
talked to a spouse and said, you know, they have this crazy idea and we just cannot possibly do it. This will never work. And, you know, she said, they're women. They can do this. Oh, really? <laughs> interesting. Interesting. And so what was that vision when you when you came here? What, what were you imagining? This was in 2006. Six. End of 2006. Um, well, for one thing, we knew that we had to become a... Uh, much more digitally forward operation. Um, Mother Jones, ironically, was the first general interest magazine to have a website like back in 1993, but it had sort of staggered along underfed and underloved by the institution. Um, so we tore down the walls between online and print. We kind of went to our board and other key funders and said, we need to start a digital operation, help put, us, put a bunch of reporters and editors in D.C. and, and some here, you know, let's turn this into a 24-7 news operation. And so we started to do that, basically. And, you know, low these many years, we now have, I don't know, 15 or so reporters and editors in D.C., a few in New York, a bunch here. Everybody works on both those platforms and, and several others that we do, but, you know, those being the primary ones. So, um, and we did that because, you know, also freelancing is a terrible model for investigative journalism. Um, I mean, it just doesn't, you know, you got to go down rabbit holes. You don't know that there's going to be any great outcome to, to, to do that kind of work. And um, that doesn't work for the writers and it doesn't work for us. So we also became a much more staff written organization. Yeah, I noticed that, that when you, when you sort of start looking, I mean, there's a huge number of bylines that pass through if you count the magazine and the website. But then if you really start looking, a lot of those people are on staff in some capacity or another. Yeah. Yeah, we decided that we needed to be a place that employs journalists more so than just a place that publishes stories. And did you have to talk them into that? I mean, that's a that's a big change. I mean, going from a magazine that was, you know, it's a little it's a sleepier endeavor to sort of like be putting out a magazine to say, okay, actually, we're going to compete on a level of news, like round the clock news, not just on the subjects we cover, but breaking news. Was is that something that the funders just said? Let's go for it. Yeah, they, you know, opened up their wallets immediately and said, <laughs> how much do you want? Just raining um, money. No, but they did, you know, um, it was not a hard sell. Um, it was a big project. I mean, it was, you know, significantly beyond what we had the capacity to do and even what we had the capacity to fundraise for. So we had to really step up our game um, basically across the organization and, go to funders and also go to our readers and say, you know, you exist in a 24-7 news space. Um, we do too. Um, you need to help us get um, our metabolism and um, our workflow and um, our content to where you are and where you want us to be. And they did. Yeah, I mean, and, and remember, it's, it's, it's not that long ago, but it was a pretty different terrain then. I mean... You know, news organizations were online, but it it certainly wasn't it wasn't common for pe- places that had a print legacy to, to sort of think like maybe our first emphasis should be digital, mm-hmm. um, and maybe we should look to the future about not how to save the business model of print, but how to complement that with a digital model in ways that you know probably will end up and indeed have ended up being the the primary revenue generator yeah the key really was i think going from putting the 
publishing model first to putting the journalism model first and saying, you know, we can do journal. We, we have to make sure we can do journalism. And then how we distribute it is secondary um, and is informed in part by what the journalism is. Like, is this a piece um, that you want in an artifact in your hands with, you know, the kind of layout that a magazine can give you? Or is it something that you need out in the next five minutes? Um, and also how we distribute it is just informed by changing technology. So five years from now, you know, it'll come to you on a different device than how it's coming to you today. But it's if the journalism is primary, then all that doesn't matter so much. And has it pushed you in any direction towards, you know, doing things that are more scoop, like instant scoop, as opposed to the longer pieces? I mean, I know the answer because I can still go read the longer pieces and do, but it, it seems to me you open up when you do that, you also open up the competition, like you're competing against, you know, the times at some level or something like talking points media that's also sort of chasing, especially in DC, chasing those kinds of scoops. Right. And so that's true. We're sort of competing on all those um, frequency issues and also on all the multimedia issues. I mean, the 47% was, you know, obviously a video and, back in 2006 or even a few years ago, we really wouldn't have had the capacity to publish that as it were um, and to you know, kind of take ownership of that and really be seen as a medium that could handle that kind of thing and you know, frankly have our server survive the hit. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, we publish, on, we, we, we feel we need to be competitive on all those different frequencies and forms, um, you know, multimedia, um, interactive databases, all the rest of it. And since this is the long form podcast, how does long form fit into that? You have writers on staff. I mean, we've, we've had a, some on, uh, we've had Mac McClellan on, for instance. We've had a lot of writers on who have written for Mother Jones in different capacities. Jennifer Gonerman has been on. Um, how do you, both resource-wise and sort of in terms of you know, how you view the operation, how, does the, how do the long form pieces fit into that? They're really complementary to um, everything we do. So Mac is a good example of how having an integrated operation makes um, you such a much better and nimble storyteller because she was able to tweet stuff as she was reporting, you know, file little dispatches from the field as she was reporting. And those were both things that built in readers a sense that, you know, she's out there doing this story that I'm also looking forward to reading in long form. Um, but it also was her notebook. Um, so she was able to go back to that stuff that was vivid in that way that it only is when you're writing it that night at your hotel and construct um, a more durable piece from it. Mm-hmm. So you're encouraging your, your long-form folks to sort of exist in the, in the digital world, in yeah. the sort of everyday world. And I don't think, and we don't have to push them. I mean, I think at this point we all exist in that space and um, we want to tell our stories in that space. It's really almost more about removing obstacles. So another example is, you know, Andy Kroll has been our reporter on the Dark Money Beat. And, you know, for the past three or so years, he's filing, you know, pieces daily, weekly on campaign finance and related issues. But then we can have him pull back and do a big, broad overview piece for the magazine of, like, how did we get to where we are? You know, it's how do we get to the United decision and how 
um, both legally and in the sort of mechanics of campaign finance, like how has that played out and, you know, who are the kingmakers and why? Um, and so that allows us to toggle between things that kind of need to come out right now that are scoopy, like, oh, this, you know, billionaire just secretly funded this operation and that story needs to come out, you know, right this second. Mm-hmm. But then all that reporting can lead into a, you know, a much kind of broader overview piece or take a deep dive into one particular piece of the operation. Which again, seems like it can only really happen if someone's on staff. That, that can't possibly happen. Right, exactly. I mean, that's a really hard model to do with freelancers. Um, you know, and I think I think we obviously still do use freelancers, but even then, our staff writers can. You know, I mean, like when Jennifer Gonerman wrote the School of Shock for a piece for us, which was on this you know horrific institution that um, tortured basically autistic and other disabled and um, emotionally disturbed kids with electroshocks, and I don't mean electroshock therapy; I mean like literally shocking them. Um, she wrote that piece, I think, back in two thousand and six or seven. I mean, it was pretty close to right after Monica and I taking over. And it was one of the pieces that showed us because the comments just kept pouring in in our janky old comment system, all these kids who had been through that institution and, you know, just these horror stories. And we were able to take that. um, And even though Jennifer wasn't on staff and she could only kind of do periodic updates with her schedule, um, we on staff were able to sort of continue that story and really keep chasing it down over the years. Um, and talk about other great reporting that that had been done on that subject elsewhere. So mm-hmm. again, it's about following a story. I mean, the old model of like, boom, you drop this massive feature and then like wipe your hands of it and can't touch that subject again for at least two years. You know, that's the sort of old school magazine model. And, you know, it never really worked well for investigative journalism. And I don't really think it works well for any journalism now because people if you give them something that they become interested in they want they want to know the updates they want to know what happened later you know what did your investigation yield and you know how did this play out and you know who went to jail and all those fun things hey this is max i'm going to pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor it's hostgator uh, HostGator is the place to get your domain names registered, to get your website hosted. If you've been sitting on some great idea and procrastinating and not taking the two seconds it would take to register the name, now is the time. HostGator will also help you get a uh, good name as opposed to one with 8 million characters that you and nobody else will ever remember. Um it might help you by getting a .NET. That part of the site is powered by VersSign, but you're going to end up with a really good domain and really good hosting. And once your idea hits it, like once you get huge and bajillions of people are coming all the time, HostGator is going to help you out. They've got VPS and dedicated servers, so your site's never going to crash. They've got 24-7, 365 support, so if you hit any snags, they'll help you out. Uh, and and if you use the code LONG at checkout, uh, you'll get 25% off. So that's good. That helps us too. That's a way of supporting the show. Uh, check them out, hostgator.com. Now back to Evan, Clara, and Monica. I, I was amazed how many of the longer form pieces, when I went back and looked at them online, had a huge update thing on the top. I, the Gary Rivlin piece on uh, like lo- tax refund loans had this huge update about what has happened since then. It, it does seem like more. it's more of an evolved story than... Right, and sometimes we update it in this piece itself, or sometimes there are you know updates that are standalone stories. Um, I think figuring out for all of us like how to kind of 
build the architecture to do that the best way for readers is a really interesting challenge. Um, it's sort of like this weird hybrid between daily journalism of old um, and and longer form. And I think it's literally like a, an architecture issue of like, how do you signal to readers like this kind of update means this level of change or this now requires you to go to this whole other story. Um, and how do you know to do that? And there's a discovery element in that, you know, every time that you update that story and promote it again, because it's um, current, you know, it connects to something in the zeitgeist now in a way that it didn't when you first published it, it also finds a new audience. Um, and it gets into a whole different set of people's social streams. You know, it gets on a lot of people's time shifters. And so it's not just the people that saw it when you first publish it are the only people who are ever going to see it. It has nine lives. Mm -hmm. How much, uh, it's interesting when you talk about the, how that's structured, and that's almost the language of sort of like, uh, product, like a product designer, like how right. are you designing the site? How much have you had to sort of like dig in and sort of, you know, the website was redesigned, you know, during your tenure in a pretty substantial way. Like, how, how have you how have you learned about sort of like how to design things for this world? Like, what have you had to learn? Well, it's not it's not had to. It's you know really wanted to because we um, just like you know magazine editors historically have been you know obsessive about how the story is told, not just not just in, you know, which word follows which other word, but also um, how they work on the page and what the, you know, what the art is and what the pacing of the book is and all that. In the same way, how people experience these stories online is such a key part of the experience um, and of what we do that we wanted to figure out how that's done and how the pieces come together. And, you know, the first time um, we did it when we, had to relaunch both the back end and the front end of the site at the same time um, during a presidential year, um, while also giving birth both of us the same year no, really. was, you know, the, the, the scheduling of that could have, been, could have been a little bit better. And we had no idea what we were doing really, but it, uh, it did end up working out and we're about to do it again and have a lot more fun with it. Yeah. Wait, which one of those things you're gonna do? Uh, <laughs> all of those things really, no. No, no uh, more kids, <laughs> on the record. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, but it, you know, now we know enough to be truly scared and also sympathetic to the, to the poor souls involved in healthcare.gov. But, you know, it's knowing now what we do. I mean, we, we sort of muck around on the front end a, a fair bit experimenting, but we're, we're hoping to do a big back end architecture change in the next year or so. And that, you know, hopefully would just make things a lot easier to, to, for readers to find what they want to find. Um, I mean, even, us, sorry, even having a editors in chief talking about front end and back end, like I bet you couldn't find that many sort of like major magazine editors who, I mean, they probably understand like the back end is the thing that goes down if you get too much traffic, but like to dig into that, I mean, everyone should in a way, but it's just interesting. It feels like you're more, more in touch with the technology than I think probably we would find at most other places. I think well, a lot of places still have a, a real wall between, especially in the magazine world, a real wall between the print product and the digital product and I think a lot of places that were very slow to come around to digital in the last couple of years have really started spending a lot more uh, money and building out staff and that's great but there's still there still is a sort of fundamental disconnect that you could see when you go to the site and sort of how it reflects the magazine and it goes back to we're not really magazine editors we're you know 
editors of journalism and storytelling and then how that stuff comes to you as a reader is something that we should be concerned about no matter which platform, no matter which channel. Yeah. So I wanted to talk briefly at least about the 47% story just because uh, it touches on a couple of things. But one, it was just such a huge story, the election. I mean, obviously, it arguably influenced the election in a variety of ways. Um, and and uh, there's been a lot written about how it came about and how the tape came about and the follow-up with David Korn. But I'm not sure I have read what was your... How did it come to you? What what did he say to you? And when did you say, holy shit, this is big? Or did you even think it was big when you first put it out? You know, we knew it would be big, but we did, I don't think anyone could have anticipated how big it went. I mean, I remember going home that night after we posted, I think, at 1 p.m. Pacific time. And by the time I went home that night, which was a crazy day that I have kind of only fractured memories of, but um, it was, you know, leading the site of every single, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, uh, Pravda, Figaro, you know, I mean, the BBC, the ABC. um, And it was just, there was no way to anticipate it would go that big. I mean, I think because it basically synthesized things that people had been feeling about the Romney campaign. And it put, in his own words, the sort of fears or apprehensions that that people had about this candidate, um, that he was out of touch with such a large swath of the American public. Um, And, you know, that's the essence of viral, I think, really, in a way, is when you give something that's like an aha moment, but also like, I I knew it. Yeah, so I guess I should step back and say for anyone who hasn't, doesn't know it, it's the 47% video, which is the secret video that was taken of Romney at a banquet. Uh, like $500 a plate, or was it $5,000 a plate uh, banquet? More than that. Uh, 50. 50. Talking about many things, one of which was that 40% of, 47% of the electorate was sort of mooching off of the government. Uh, right. I don't remember the exact quote. But, um, but so was it then sort of like, how do we capitalize on this, or what do we do with this attention? I mean, I don't know that I had seen, at least in the last few years, Mother Jones so much out there on, on these other outlets and, you know, some credited better than others probably but I mean to really see the name out there did you say okay well what does this mean for us well it um, it was really validating um, and in fact it the way that it played out played out because of all the work that had gone um, into what we're doing here before then you know we found actually that um, we were widely credited and that people um, not only not only said who the who the story came from, but also didn't preface it with you know the liberal magazine or the you know San Francisco magazine. And that was really, and in fact, some people actually wrote you know this because there was a lot of controversy. For if you recall, when it first dropped about you know was this a you know piece of Apple research? How legitimate was it? And people basically said if it's coming from Mother Jones, it's credible. And that was what it had taken all those years prior. Um, to do, and we were able to capitalize on all that work that went before, and now we're able to point back to that moment and say, this is proof of concept of what we were able to do with the investment that we made um, over the years prior, and now we can go out and say, and imagine what we can do if we went even bigger, if we expanded more, if we reinvented ourselves yet again. And you, and. Were you explicitly trying to get out from under this idea that Mother Jones was a political magazine or a magazine of, of a certain type of advocacy 
uh, writing as opposed to journalism? We were trying to get out from under people saying our journalism was not credible because it had voice mm-hmm. or it had perspective. Um, and that was not just our doing. It was also um, the Internet's doing to an extent. You know, it's just those categories no longer really work. Um, voice is is such an integral part of how people tell stories now um, that it makes those of us who have always done that um, much less of a sort of odd beast. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also, you know, we have, we probably pay more attention to our fact-checking and our research than almost everybody in, um, in our industry. And by the time we publish stuff, we really make sure it's unimpeachable because people would like to impeach it. Right. I mean, so in that case, we, you know, we went through a long period, not only kind of working out with the source who we now know is Scott Prouty, but, um, you know, exactly how much, you know, how to tell what he wanted told of his, his interaction, like how he came to shoot the video, but making sure that we had a solid transcript of making sure we were on really sound legal footing with the reporting that went around it. Like, what was this fundraiser? Where was it? How much did people pay? Like, you know, what exactly were the circumstances under which, you know, Governor Romney came to speak before this group of people? Um, and so all of that, it wasn't just dropping like, ooh, gotcha video. It was, here's the context. And then, of course, the reporting that David Korn had done that led him to be the person that Scott gave the video to, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, Scott's particular interest was in uh, China and kind of workers' rights. And so the thing that he was really focused on the video is something that's been largely forgotten, which is, you know, Governor Romney's personal investments and investments through Bain into various Chinese enterprises um, with a kind of dubious workers' rights um, record, that's what he thought would be the big gotcha moment. Oh, um, yeah. You know, when we took a look at it, when David took a look at it, it's like, uh, no, that's going to be that forty-seven percent comment and similar comments along the way. So, um, so but that, it was important to get it all out there and also just to break it down for people. And you know, simple things in a branding sense of like we put our watermark on it, so people didn't really have a choice but to credit us. Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes they try to cover it up through their own crawl or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, uh, and I think the Internet has made that for everybody. Like, it's important to sort of credit people's good work elsewhere. It's no longer this sort of weird, like, only three news institutions can, um, will name each other and everybody else is just forgotten. It sort of helps when you, own, when you kind of, like, are the only p- people that have the actual thing. You know, right. someone can't go re-report that on their, around you because basically you... The video is yours. Um, But it it seems like it's still... uh, I noticed recently this little story about, or maybe little depending on where you come from, about you getting banned from Reddit, which both sort of like exemplifies the extent to which you exist in the internet world, that that's an issue, uh, but also that it kind of like, it felt like it brought up these older issues, like, well, this this, we're banning it because it's not really a news, a supplier of whatever they would, would call... I don't know why Reddit cares about like objective news, but... Anyway, um, what, what was the sort of, uh, is that resolved? Yeah, it we're is. unbanned. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. Although all the other sites that were banned along with us, um, you know, many of which also are just do not qualify um, under the um, category of not being legitimate, legitimate news providers um, remain banned. And there's still a controversy um, on Reddit about that. But um, no, it was really interesting that when that happened, when these volunteer moderators um, decided to 
blacklist of a whole bunch of sites that Mother Jones was the one that people rallied around and said, well, of all people, you know, the place that brought you the 47% story um, is a place that we want to have as part of our discussions. Yeah, including a lot of people who are like, you know, I, I do not kind of agree with um, the perspective that Mother Jones, like I'm from a different part of the political spectrum than what I think Mother Jones is, but I nonetheless don't think you should ban them because they're they're doing good reporting. Just as we didn't think, you know, the National Review was also getting banned and, you know, Robert Costa just you know, got onto the Washington Post, was like a critical reporter on the shutdown. It's like, you can't ban them, especially during this moment. That's crazy. They're doing some of the best reporting out there on the sort of, you know, war within the GOP. Yeah. Um, so, um, but it was really, it was really heartening to see how other journalists, but also just other readers were like, this is ridiculous. You can't ban these guys. It certainly helps when you have a, like a trophy case full of awards that you can point to, to say people in the, in the <laughs> world of journalism, uh, seem to respect what we're doing. So you should too. Uh, and you just won this Pan American award for magazine editors recently. That was just a couple weeks ago. That was really a wonderful thing, um, particularly because, um, and we talked about this when we were there, I mean, A, it was just amazing to be in a room with, you know, Frank DeFord and Kate Boo and, you know, and Larry, Larry Kramer, Kramer showing up in a wheelchair and giving uh, a rousing speech of this, about the smallness of today's theater. Um, but it was also um, really wonderful because they have um, given this award to people kind of up and down the masthead and have validated that um, collaboration and being part of a of a team is as important as a sort of great man um, legend, which, you know, really is hollow most of the time anyway. Yeah. And, and what I want to talk a little bit about how you sort of develop the skills that led to being able to do this. And you said that you met in Minneapolis a long time ago, but then did you sort of go your separate ways for a while? Yeah, we did, but we both worked at Alt Weeklies for a good chunk of our career. Um, Monica was at City Pages in Minneapolis, and I was at City Paper in Washington, D.C. Um, so many people have passed through that. That's a real uh, factory for Yeah, there was a really great... Today. I mean, I always joke that I got my... I got a year of uh, Jack Schaefer and a year of David Carr as my boss when I was there, so... Um, it was a, a crucible of awesomeness. <laughs> but, uh, but then, you know, we, I then went on to Harper's Magazine um, for about seven years. And Monica was, you were at City Pages for a long time, just doing kind of amazing work there. I was there for a good long while. And that was another one of those places, you know, because a lot of people gravitate to um, Minneapolis-St. Paul as a sort of, outpost of culture between Chicago and the West Coast, you know, there were a lot of really great writers yeah. um, that ended up there. So, and alt-weeklies um, were this, you know, they, they're really struggling now, but for a long time there were this, these magazines on newsprint um, where you could basically go to boot camp, um, learn all about how to really do shoe leather reporting, and then tell the story as well and not fall into the kind of anonymous voice of God newspaper reporting style and uh, there's really no better way to learn yeah I mean we were I mean I know that I mean, I'm sure the true same was true for you I mean I got to write culture pieces and political pieces I started a column you know I once wrote one of those columns in sort of um, the prose of Samuel Richardson and Jack Schaefer was like I have no idea what the f this is but just go with it 
Um, you know, I mean, we really got to experiment, and it was also one of the great training grounds for young journalists. I mean, the reason we came up with so many great people is that that's where a lot of people, you know, started their real writing and editing careers. Um, and so their loss, their diminishment has been a real loss to journalism, which is why we've put so much time and effort into building out our fellowship program. We really believe that somebody's got to train the next generation of writers and editors. And so we, you know, it obviously helps our organization, but we take it very seriously that, you know, the places that have done that historically, most of them, a lot of them have either cut back or disappeared altogether. And do you, um, I mean, you were at Harper's and Harper's sort of like has, uh, has gone in a different direction, we, sh- we could say, and when it comes to the internet. Um, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and were you aware of that at the time and sort of saying we should be doing something else and if I got the opportunity, I would do this a different way? Um, you know, Rick MacArthur tells this tale that I don't actually remember of me being one of the young people kind of assailing him in the hallways and insisting that we get online. Um, whether or not that actually happened. I think that by the time I left, you know, the writing was was on the wall. And, you know, it only increased, you know, I left in 2002. So, you know, it, it hadn't quite taken off by then. But I think, you know, I, I feel it's a real loss to readers that they can't, that more of Harper's isn't available to more people. Um, you know, I understand the, the trying to drive people to the subscription model, I'm not so sure that's a workable model, um, but I think the real loss is that there's you know there's great writing going on there, but I think it's it's um, not being heard as much as it should. And you you both so you both had long form editing experience when you when you arrived here, and how do you go about finding and cultivating the writers that you have? I mean the writers that you have on staff now, like Mac McClellan. How did you find her, and where did where did she come from? Do you do you look to the fellowship program? Do you look internally usually, or do you are you going out into the often? World? I mean, Mac um, is one of the many people that came on staff through the fellowship program. So a lot of our staff writers have come up through that um, that process, which is sort of a model that Harper's had actually. Although we were all editors who, like, once in a while, dropped a massive feature. Kind of um, that was the model there. But it's been invaluable. I mean, we get to really learn people's strengths. And, um, you know, now, especially that we're hiring um, people in different different media, we can say, okay, this, this fellow has a real knack and area of expertise in interactive reporting. And so we're going to create a special job for them. Um, it really allows us to test people out in various ways. So like Mac was our copy editor for two plus years. Um, writing a little bit, but mostly doing that, and um, gradually started working into doing more writing. Do you work directly with uh, those writers on pieces, or is it is it layered enough here that you have senior editors who would be doing all of the sort of frontline editing on that? Not all of it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, I think for one thing, I mean, we probably, you know, we need to be hands-on editing um, pieces less than we are, but there are just writers that we either have a relationship with or stories that um, we have a notion of how they're going to work that we don't want to inflict on somebody else to execute. 
Um, and it's also probably true that we just, you know, it, it'd be really hard to entirely wring um, hands-on editing and also writing um, from our hands. I mean, once that happens, you're you're really just management. And I think if you lose touch with how the thing is done, it becomes much harder to tell people how to do it or support people in doing it um, because why would they believe you? Right, and also like sometimes you're like, why, why can't this just work this way? And I mean, the best way sometimes to figure out if, if your insistence that it can um, is to actually get in there and say, oh, you know, well, it, it can, or actually maybe it just can't work that way. Um, yeah. So I think it's good for us to keep our hand in, um, but it's, you know, it's a bandwidth challenge to be sure. I would imagine. So I could also, I could ask you about pieces all day, uh, different pieces in the magazine. Um, one in particular I wanted to bring up because I'm just curious how it came about was this, I think it's Shane Bauer, the the solitary confinement piece, which also won a bunch of awards um, in addition to Max writing has won a bunch of awards mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. But how did how did that piece come about? Because that's, that's one that's coming not from staff. So I'm just curious, how does this sort of stuff come in? That was an amazing piece to work on. Um, we had worked with Shane um, for a few years, you know, he was based in um, actually Syria for a number of years and did um, reporting from all over the Middle East. Um, he did a piece for us on contracting in Iraq that was really good. And then um, one day in the summer of 2009, we got some urgent alerts from people who knew Shane that he had been hiking in Iraqi Kurdistan and had been taken into custody by Iran. Um, and then he and his two friends... Um, were ended up in um, Evan prison um, outside of Tehran in the political prison um, of the Iranian police state um, for two years, um, primarily in isolation because they were political prisoners, so they couldn't um, be allowed to be in contact with the general population. And they finally got out and within, you know, I mean, most people after that experience, I think would just, you know, want to do something totally different for the rest of their lives and, you know, walk away from write about puppies and kittens for the rest of eternity um, or leave the field altogether. But Shane, um, within about two months of getting out, came to us and said, I want to use my experience being in solitary to write about solitary in U.S. prisons. And he had a really amazing investigative piece, but he also was you know, probably the only person on the face of the earth who could bring to a reader the experience of um, these guys in lockup who were, you know, mostly had very different lives um, from his readers and say, I can be the bridge between what that guy is going through and the, um, and the experience that you have. And so he went back um, behind the wire and spent time in these prisons. And it turned out all the guys had knew of him and knew of their story and had followed them while they were in prison in Iran and sympathized with them and opened up to them and, you know, are still writing to him every day. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And then the thing he really delved into in that piece was how people, you know, particularly in Pelican Bay, but in in supermax prisons and and similar kind of solitary intensive prisons all over the country are being put there for you know arguably no reason like not just gang affiliation like i am actually in a prison gang but like i once sat in a lunch you know space with somebody in a gang or i have this you know um 
black power novel in my possession and so therefore I must be a panther and therefore I must be put into solitary or just all these really specious reasons with no real oversight, no real appeals process. And that solitary, the, the fact that people were being put into solitary in such a manner and not given a, a, a way to appeal was a, was a big, if not the main reason that, you know, so many uh, that, you know, basically California prisoners went on a hunger strike for months and months, mm-hmm. and which, you know, didn't get nearly the national play that it should have, but was, you know, California has incredibly overpopulated prisons and there's a myriad of problems with them. But this was really focused around that issue of dumping people into solitary with no no chance of appeal and, and not really a good reason to be put in there to begin with in many cases. Yeah, it really, especially on this podcast, bears saying that um, in many, many, many of these cases, people were put in isolation for um, years and years without any process because of things they were reading and books that they possessed. Yeah, and well, one of the interesting things about that piece is the way that uh, the, the sort of guy at Pelican Bay is trying to get him to say, like, it wasn't so much worse when you were in Iran. And he's kind of like, uh, it's in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. Um, and so that, so is he is he still writing for, for yeah, Mother Jones now? Yeah, um, and his book is coming out in the spring um, that, you know, where he'll tell the story of the imprisonment in Iran. It'll be, you know, great. We've seen a little bit of it. And, and then we, we this we kind of hit on this a couple of times when you said that uh, the, I guess, owner of Mother Jones or the person who was in charge of hiring you sort of went home and his wife said they're two. They're both women. They can handle it. But I did want to touch on both gender issues related to editing and and, you know, byline gender gap. Not because uh, we can uh, tackle it in the probably like last 10 minutes that we're talking here. But one thing I was curious about is there has been a lot of, you know, I feel like with Twitter and and with with the web, there's a lot more discussion about it. And I will say as an editor of a publication that does like honestly fairly poorly on this front, like we've been involved in that discussion and and trying to figure things out. It's influenced how we operate. But is it your feeling, first of all, that things are getting better in that department or that we're sort of still talking about things the way that it could have been talked about 10 years ago? I think things are getting better in some respects. Like when Monica and I took over Mother Jones, there had been, I think, four total editors in chief of, you know, general interest thought leader magazines, which is a sort of useless category that <laughs> that is applied <laughs> amongst magazine people. But, you know, kind of the Times, the Newsweeks, the New Yorkers, the Vanity Fairs of the world. So of those four, Monica and I, um, Tina Brown twice, and Deirdre English, who had been editor of Mother Jones years ago. And uh, Katrina. And Katrina Van Heuvel. Uh, you know, and that wasn't counting some online publications like when Joan Walsh was head of Salon and so forth. But it was still a really low number. Um, that has gotten better. And I think it's better further down the ranks. Um, but it, there's still not... You know, I I still think that publications are really lazy about it. Um, A lot of it is, I think, one of the reasons we do better is because we bring people up through the ranks. So Mm -hmm. we have the ability and the dedication to hire people and nurture people from, you know, who are both men and women from various backgrounds, et cetera. But, you know, I think it's it's the effort collectively that we put in is (laughs) what yields the results that we ideally would want you know I think there are other factors you know there's obviously as with every other profession I think women still face a sort of unequal 
work-life distribution um, and a lot of pressures and that, that men typically don't have as much. Um, that's changing too. So I think overall it's getting better. I still find the umbrage when uh, the people show when they're being called out on their pathetic byline distributions to be kind of comical. Um, you know, and I think it's, 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 it's a clubby profession, like every profession. And so, you know, I think as women who have been on staffs at places where there was a boys club, you know, and we sort of saw how that worked, um, you know, we don't have to persuade us that, that those clubs still exist. They may not exist as, um, be as entrenched and be as everywhere as they used to be, but that still is a real issue. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's just to sort of go all Sheryl Sandberg, um, you know, it's a two-way street. Um, it is incumbent on, I mean, any woman who wants to make it in this profession is going to have to fight for it. It's just not going to be easy. But that's also true for everybody else, um, you know, and it's even more true for um, groups that face additional challenges, um, you know, even, who are even more underrepresented. But um, people are going to have to fight for it, but people who um, have historically been the gatekeepers also need to not just actively look at what they might be doing, but also at what they're not doing. Um, a lot of it just has to do with sort of removing signposts that you're not welcome in this club and that, you know, oh, yeah, sure, you're welcome, but you have to, you know, be like us. Please in, write about you know, your family and relationship. Uh, you know, oh, well, you know, I mean, that's a whole other thing. Like, if you even took the bylines and then, which we did once and we were so horrified by it, kind of, it was not, you know, scientifically done. But if you start to look at w- what women do write about, and yeah, there are going to be realities that maybe if you're, um, you know, have small kids, you're not as likely to be a war correspondent, et cetera. But it's also that women are steered into like, oh, you've written this nice lifestyle piece. Here's your next assignment, and here's your next assignment. No one ever says, that's a really nice piece of writing. Why don't you go write about this? Um, and I think it's it's also really hard, especially for freelance writers, because they need to follow the paychecks. And so if they have success in a sort of you know, more psychological lifestyle, whatever, th- those kind of areas, they're more likely to get an assignment in those kind of areas. And so that, that just becomes this rut. It could be a great rut, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, you could all argue that Malcolm Gladwell's rut is not that different. But, you know, it, it, so it's incumbent on both, certainly incumbent on editors to kind of force yourself to think, you know, maybe, the, maybe I should give this person a chance in a slightly different arena. And do you both feel, I mean, does it still, does it feel clubby to you? If you, I mean, you're also in San Francisco, so there's this sort of, you're operating in a different media world than the sort of New York Magazine media world. But do you feel like when you go to New York for the National Magazine Awards or something that it feels like, oh, this is a boys club and we're breaking down the, the door? Or do you feel like, hey, here's our gazillion National Magazine Award nominations over the past uh, seven years, like... Yeah, we're we're here. You can. It, like I said, it's gotten a little bit better. But when we, you know, when we've had the opportunity to get our pictures taken with a whole bunch of other editors who won awards, we're, we're the usually, pop of color. Yeah, we're the only <laughs> women there. Um, you know, and we're and like you know, let's not even start talking about the whiteness of yes. the you know magazine world. It's just horrible. And you know, 
so much of it is just kind of the, you know, head desk moment of how can we have another all-male future of news panel or, you know, right. and, you know, being in San Francisco, how can we have another all-male technology of publishing panel? Um, or Time just did an all-male, you know, chefs of the future gods panel of food. or whatever. You know, it's just like, really, uh, you know. And those things, it's, those things are trivial and yet they matter. I mean, you're sending a signal to everybody, to your readers, to people who are coming up through the ranks in that profession, be it the journalists or the chefs, you know, to kids. Um, you, but you really are sending signals about what you think is important. And, you know, it's not to say, like, oh, well, we have to have, like, a perfect system where everybody is proportionally represented on a population basis or anything. But it's more just don't be so lazy. There are great people out there that are different than the 10 people you know already. So la- last thing, so we've talked a lot about the sort of transitions to online and, and things that you've done with the magazine. And what do you view as the sort of long-term, first of all, do you see yourself sort of staying and helming this magazine for a very long time? Uh, that's one issue. And then the other is just, what's the sort of level of sustainability, you know, Mother Jones National Pro- Foundation National Progress raises money. And, you know, to what extent do you feel like the whole thing should be self-sustaining on its own or it's always going to require you know a certain level of fundraising or what I don't know, what's the aim well so part of self-sustaining is fundraising mm-hmm. i think you know the thing that we've all learned over the past uh, you know however many years since you know everybody in the industry has started to talk about membership models which is really just a fancy way of saying, you know, you need to support the journalism that you care about. Um, you know, the Times calls it a digital subscription, but it's really just like we all know how to read Times pieces online without paying a dime. If we give, if we pay money, it's because we want to give them money, and that's pretty much what everybody now understands. That part of your diversified revenue streams has to be, you know, commercial revenue, which we take. Like, you know, we'll take almost any money that's green and doesn't have you know, real serious ethics issues attached to it. You know, we'll take money from small donors, large donors, you know, email subscribers, site visitors, print subscribers, et cetera. Um, All those things have to work together to create sustainability. And um, the next iteration, iterations of that are going to be um, probably just as wild as the last few that we've been through. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things have gotten wrongly um, intertwined. And one is the sort of information should be free. I I think that the real issue there is that information should be without barriers. It doesn't mean there's no cost to it. Of course there's a cost to it. Like you've got to send people to Syria. You've got to, you know, hire lawyers. You need fact checkers. If you want good, you need to hire photographers. If you want good good reading, somebody's got to pay for it. So, you know, in the way that American publishing, both through the sort of, you know, Condé Nast Hearst magazine model and the newspaper model was that you basically gave the publication away for almost close to free because advertisers um, subsidized it. Yeah. And that model is falling apart. And, you know, I think it's falling apart. You know, the, the, the free fall in the, in the uh, magazine world has been slowed somewhat, but it's really being kind of, I think the tablet portion of that is basically fulfilling the rate base that they're guaranteeing to advertisers. So there's not as many print copies on newsstands. There's not as many print copies going out. 
you know, how much of this will hold for, you know, the near or long-term future, I think it's really uncertain. And so I think one of the jobs that everybody in the industry has to take upon themselves is to persuade people that one way or another, you can call it a nonprofit model or you can call it a membership model or whatever. You can raise the subscription price. But if you want this stuff to be around, people have to pay for it. You know, I mean, journalists are like anyone else. We need to eat. Not a lot, but (laughs) a lot of ramen, but... And do you both think you'll, you'll, are you, are you Mother Jones lifers? Oh, who knows, you know, but the cool thing is we, we've, you know, basically changed jobs about four times in the last six years because there have been so many incarnations of what we do here. Um, It's really been, you know, a series of startups. um, And the only thing that's really remained the same is, you know, the building, the logo and, you know, a good chunk of the staff. So we could, you know, probably do that a few more times. (laughs) And you have that Hunter Thompson table, or the Rolling Stone table with Hunter we Thompson. We have the Hunter knives. Thompson. I think it's actually uh, Joe, Joe Esther Esther House. House I think the, both of them, right? Well, I think they both sat there, but I always thought that the knife marks on the side were supposedly Hunter Thompson, but I think we were we fact-checked that, and it was actually repeatedly Joe Esther House. Uh, Joe, if you're out there, you can correct us on the record if you want. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you get back to actually making a magazine, so thank you so much for taking out the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Evan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I am not Evan Ratliff. This is Max, but Evan's on the West Coast, so I'm pinch hitting for the credits, which means I get to say thanks to Evan Ratliff for hosting this week's episode. Uh, thanks also to Clara and Monica for taking the time. I really like these episodes where we talk to editors, and uh, I hope you do too, because I think we're going to do more of them. Uh, we have an editor of our own, Lauren Kirchner. Thanks to her. Thanks also to Gavin Jenkins, our intern. Our sponsors this week, HostGator and Tiny Letter. Thanks to them. And thanks to you for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, Go rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you're listening to this. Tell the other people that you like it. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.